and we pray that you would speak to us this morning through it, that it's timeless message and it's a very practical message we would ring true in our hearts and lives and be a guiding light to us as we seek to live out the gospel uh, more deeply and more purely every day. To your glory. Amen. Now then, the tongue is an organ that you find in most vertebrates. Uh, it has, of course, two main functions. Firstly, the tongue enables food to be moved around the mouth for chewing, and secondly, enables food to be tasted. But there is a third function which is unique to humans, and that is the function of speech. Uh, speech sets us apart as human beings. Now, sometimes your dog may look at you with those big longing eyes and seem on the verge of speech, but actually it ain't going to happen. Uniquely, the tongue enables us to articulate words, to express what we're thinking, uh, to communicate with each other, and it is a wonderful gift. And it's the third use of the tongue which is our focus today as we continue to look together at this letter of James. Now, how important is the tongue, biblically speaking? Well, on one level, we may be tempted to say, not very important. Uh, last week in chapter 2, we saw that a living faith was more than just words. Uh, we saw last week in chapter 2 that it's not just enough to say that we have faith, to profess faith. Uh, it's not just good enough to say to people in need, uh, go well, I'll pray for you. Uh, we saw last week in chapter 2 that we need to be people of action. And the emphasis there was on what we do more than on what we say. But we must be careful, of course, not to fall off the other side of the horse. Words do matter. And what we say is hugely significant, biblically speaking. In fact, if we go back to chapter 1, verses 26 to 27, uh, James gave us there three hallmarks of true religion. And the first was controlling our tongue. Uh, chapter 1, verse 26. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. One way in which we can tell whether somebody's faith is living or dead is from how they use their tongue. But why is that? Why does the tongue matter so much? We're going to see uh, four aspects of the tongue today in this passage. The tongue, firstly, is supremely influential. Secondly, the tongue is surprisingly untamable. Thirdly, the tongue is disturbingly inconsistent. And fourthly, the tongue is seriously revealing. So let's look at the first of those. The tongue is supremely influential. Uh, verse 1, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Uh, by teachers, of course, it's talking about Bible teachers. Bible teachers will be judged by God more strictly. Now, that's not a fact which is put on the front page of ministry training scheme brochures. We don't quite say that first thing when people inquire about Metro. It's a sobering thought. 
not just for me, but for any of us involved in a Bible teaching capacity. Uh, In small groups, for example, we who teach will be judged more strictly. Uh, Why is that? Uh, Luke 12, verse 48 sheds further light on it. This is what Jesus says there. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. So why is control of the tongue so important? The answer comes in verse 2. Because the tongue is the key to holy living. It influences the whole of our life. Look at verse 2. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. Now, the word translated perfect here also occurs in chapter 1, verse 4. And it means spiritually mature and complete. Do you want to be, as a Christian, spiritually mature and complete? Christian growth starts by controlling the tongue. It involves rooting out the hasty word, the white lie, the harmful gossip, the coarse innuendo, the boastful brag. It requires a ruthless rejection of any distortion, deception, defamation, deflection, or denial. Now, coming back to Bible teachers, the primary tool of a Bible teacher is their tongue. And that's why they will be judged more strictly. The use of their tongue is integral to them effectively fulfilling their role as teachers and role models. So to control our tongue is to set the whole course of our Christian walk on the right path. We keep the whole of our life in check. The control of the tongue is more than just the evidence of spiritual maturity, it's actually the path to spiritual maturity. Now then, James goes on to emphasize the importance of the tongue, and he uses uh, two illustrations. The tongue may be small, but it is surprisingly impactful. Look at verse 3. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Now, as you're probably aware, a horse is a big, powerful beast. I've only been on one once, and I have no desire to repeat it. Uh, They make it look so easy in the Westerns, but I can assure you it is not. Uh, I was very thankful for the bit, that's the small piece of metal in the the mouth of the horse attached to the reins. It enabled me to control the whole animal, uh, to make it go this way and that, and thankfully to make the wretched thing to stop. The tongue is a bit like a horse's bit in the mouth. If you control that, You control the whole person. Now, the tongue, I'm told, weighs 0.045% of the body's weight. But the tongue punches above its weight. Uh, Look at the second example in verse 4. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Uh, You can ask Hugh there about the size of the rudder on his single skull boat. 
Uh, it is not very large compared to the single skull. But that is vital to steering the whole thing. The tongue has an influence like a rudder, way out of proportion to its size. At verse 5. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. So on the positive side, to control our tongue is the key to our Christian growth. It keeps the whole course of our Christian life on track. But on the negative side, if the tongue is uncontrolled, it can be the source of boasting and great self-centeredness. It can set the whole course of our life on fire. Look at verse 5. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Now, of course, uh, this summer we are all too familiar with the horror of bushfires raging out of control devastating millions of square kilometers of land. And also, we are all too aware that this catastrophic destruction usually starts with something incredibly small, a spark, a single bolt of lightning, or a helicopter landing light. And so too, our tiny tongue can be just as destructive. Maybe we are careless or malicious in our speech. We make a throwaway comment. We pass on some gossip. We cut somebody down to size. We make fun of somebody in front of others for a laugh. And we walk away. And yet in our wake, we leave a trail of spot fires that smolder and spread. Uh, one woman once wrote into a Christian organization, and in her letter she explained how she suffered from low self-esteem and depression. And she went on to explain that the root cause of these things was her, what her father said to her when she was a child. At the time of writing the letter, she was in her 80s. Our words have huge potential for bringing devastating destruction to others. But did you notice that the damage is not just limited to those on the receiving end? The damage also damages the person who is uttering these words. Ungodly words set the whole course of our life on fire. So the tongue is small, but it is surprisingly influential. It is immensely powerful. So what should we do? Well, if the passage ended here, we'd probably conclude we merely need to be more careful in what we say, uh, more aware of the impact of our words, that uh, we need to try harder maybe to use our tongues for good. But you see, at the end of the day, uh, that is just moralizing. That's what you might get in a work seminar or in a school report. Just try harder but it is not as simple as that. Because the tongue is not just supremely influential, it is surprisingly 
untamable. Verse 7. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. Man's record at taming the animals is pretty impressive. Uh, we train dogs to fetch sticks, sniff out drugs and bombs, search for bodies, and guide the blind. Uh, we tame horses to pull carts or to carry soldiers. Uh, we tame birds of prey for hunting. We tame sea lions to entertain us at Taronga Zoo. Every kind of wild animal can be and has been tamed and controlled by humans. But look at verse 8. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Uh, we can tame, tame huge elephants and killer whales and lions, but this tiny bit of flesh in our mouths, we cannot tame it. None of us can. It's wild. It's a restless evil that never stops. We're told that it is full of deadly poison. Uh, many years ago, when I was on holiday in PNG, uh, I stepped on a poisonous fish and got seriously ill. And for a long while, the wound wouldn't heal because of the poison. But eventually, after a week or two, uh, I eventually was better. But the poison of the tongue can cause damage which time doesn't heal. And that was evidence in what that lady wrote when she wrote into that Christian organization about the impact of her father's words from her earliest childhood. Now then, uh, in attempts to make me a little more emotionally resilient in my primary school, my mum had a little saying that maybe your mum used it on you too. Sticks and stones may hurt my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, I know my mum had good intentions, but I think there was a fundamental flaw in what she was saying because it wasn't true. Words do inflict deep and lasting pain. They do hurt us. Not only is the tongue surprisingly untamable, but it is disturbingly inconsistent. Verse 9. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's image. By the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Have you ever, has it ever struck you how strange that is? Uh, with our tongues, we bless our Lord and Father as we're doing today. And in this service, we're using our tongues to sing praises to the Lord and to pray to Him. But with that same tongue, we curse people who are made in the image of our Father in heaven. So on our way home, when somebody cuts us up in the traffic, we may use and use unutterable language, either uttered literally or in our hearts. We may be rude to our spouse. We may shout in frustration at our children or gossip or slander to somebody and put them down. 
One moment the tongue is being used to bless God, the next to curse people made in his image. Is it not a bizarre inconsistency? How can it be? Well, it does say something about the state of our hearts. Uh, Using two metaphors from nature, James goes on to show there is always a link between the output and the source, what we say and the heart within. Verse 11, can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or grapes, grape vine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. A salty spring is only ever going to produce salty water. A fig tree will only ever produce figs. Why do two types of water, that is blessing and cursing, flow out of the same mouth? Why are two types of fruit, praise and prayer and swearing and slander and gossip, produced from the one tongue? It's to do with what's going on in the heart. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. It's that inner person. And of course, Jesus taught this, uh, Matthew 12, verse 34, for example. For out of the outflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The mouth is the outflow of the heart. The words which spill out of our mouth reveal actually what's truly going on in our hearts. It's interesting, isn't it, that sometimes when we say something which we regret, we say, oh, I didn't mean that. But the reality is, actually, we did mean that. We just regret saying it now because it's revealed what's going on in our hearts. So why do we get fresh and salt water from the same opening? And it is a sign that actually our hearts are divided. Back in chapter 1 verse 8, James talked about the double-minded person, literally the two-souled person, someone with a divided heart. We get salt water and fresh water out of the same mouth because our hearts are divided. There are two sources supplying our mouths. There are two personalities. There's the old sinful nature and the new nature. There are two types of wisdom by which we are living. One is driven by humility and the other by self-serving ambition. Look at verse 13, because it goes on to reveal that the tongue is seriously revealing. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. James is a little like one of those annoying investigative journalists. He just won't give up. Uh, He's determined to get to the root of the problem. He's determined to expose the story for what it truly is. And he won't stop digging. And in verse 13, his spade hits something solid. If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts. There they are, 
uh, the two ugly sisters. They are the foul driving forces behind so much of what we say. Uh, Firstly, selfish ambition. It's this wrong attitude to myself. Self-interest is on the throne. I want to be number one. I want to be the center of attention. I want my needs to be met. Uh, The second ugly sister is this bitter envy. And of course, it is a close relative. It's this wrong attitude to others, which doesn't want them to do well, which doesn't rejoice when something goes well for the other person. It comes from a competitive spirit, which wants to put them down, which feels wounded when someone else is praised because they've taken the glory which I want for myself. This is why we say things that we shouldn't say. These are the heart attitudes which give rise to the misuse of the tongue. Selfish ambition, bitter envy. And when the IP address of this wisdom is triangulated, the source is truly shocking. Verse 15. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. When the outworking of such wisdom is observed, its results are like one of those forest fires. They are truly horrific. Verse 16. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Just think for a moment of the damage that is caused in our relationships, in our marriages, in our workplaces by these heart attitudes and by the words which flow from them. But then in contrast, imagine how different things would be if envy and selfish ambition were rooted out. What would it look like if our hearts and lives were full of heavenly wisdom? Look at verse 17. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, then considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. This heavenly wisdom is a beautiful thing. Uh, It is pure. Uh, This is the pure spring from which fresh water will flow. It, It brings peace. It is gentle. It is open to reason. Just think about how these qualities would be expressed in words. They would be words which make peace instead of strife. They would be words which were gentle rather than words which are used for wounding and for hand-to-hand combat. Imagine a marriage and a friendship and a workplace where there were only words driven by heavenly wisdom. Words which sow harvest fields of righteousness. Words which bring peace rather than words which leave behind a wasteland of destruction. So let's start to draw the strands together. I came across the following about the tongue from a medical uh, journal. 
and it says this, and I quote, Among all the organs, the tongue is the most correct gauge of the state of the digestive tract and the most precise indicator of some internal diseases. So apparently from the fur that you get on your tongue and the odor and the color of it, you could tell a lot about what is going on inside. Uh, did you know that the same is true of the tongue in the sense of our words, spiritually speaking? And when we go to Dr. James, that is the person who's written this epistle, for a spiritual checkup, we may think that we're doing pretty well. We may consider ourselves to be wise and understanding, as James's first readers clearly did. But the first thing that Dr. James says to us and to them is, stick out your tongue and say, ah, because our words reveal all. And therefore the question is, what do your words reveal about you? What do my words reveal about me? Now, if I could speak for a moment to the person who is not yet trusting in Christ, it may be that you consider yourself a good person. Maybe you find it hard to understand why Christians go on about the need for God's forgiveness through Jesus. But what about your tongue? What if we had an MP player of everything that you'd said over the past week? How would you feel if we went through and played it back the edited highlights. Would your words justify your self-perception of being a good person? Or would your words condemn you? Would your words reveal that actually you don't even live out life to your own standards, never mind God's? Would your words reveal boasting, gossip, slander of others? And what does it reveal therefore about your heart? If you're honest, isn't James right when he says that envy and selfish ambition are lurking within? We are not as good as we like to think that we are, and none of us are. And that is why we all need God's forgiveness, which is only available through Christ. And that is why we all need God's renewing of our hearts, which is only possible through His Holy Spirit. As Jesus said to that religious, good, moral leader, Nicodemus, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you are born again, renewed in your hearts. But what about those of us who do profess faith in Christ? Now, when I was a kid and not feeling well, uh, my mum would check my temperature by putting a thermometer under my tongue. Now, I used to toy with the fascinating thought of what would happen if I bit through the thermometer and swallowed the mercury. Maybe you've done the same. Uh, these days, kids are cheated of that drama because the thermometer is now inserted into the ear. How unadventurous. Do you ever wish you could take your temper spiritually? How am I doing spiritually? Am I doing well? Am I growing? Am I maturing? Well, how can I take my spiritual temperature? Well, James tells us, and we don't put the thermometer in our ear. We don't put it under our armpit. We don't put it anywhere else but under our tongue. 
What do our tongues say about the state of our hearts? How are we doing in our conversations? What does it reveal about what's going on inside? Well, when we take our spiritual temperature, let me suggest there are three possible readings that we might get. Firstly, a dead faith. If I'm somebody whose tongue is out of control, it may be pointing to me not actually being truly born again in my heart. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 26 said this. Again, uh, if anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself. And it's religion is worthless. Uh, In church life, of course, you will meet people who profess faith, but whose tongues are out of control. Uh, They are like an open sewer into a creek. They pour out gossip and slander and unkindness, and they cause so much damage within the church community. And if that's me, whatever I may say I believe, James would say, I'm fooling myself I've got a dead faith. I need to repent. I need to ask God for a living faith before it's too late. Now, the second reading, which we may get on the thermometer, is that of a mature faith. If I'm somebody whose words reflect the heavenly wisdom of verse 17, that is a sign of mature faith. If my words are in the main pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, that is something to thank God for and something to keep growing in. But we may get a third reading on the thermometer, and that is the reading of a divided heart. What if my words are a real mixed bag? At one moment's heavenly wisdom, encouraging and kind, and the next crashing down to earth with a bump in anger or gossip. What if I am deeply inconsistent? Well, James would say I'm suffering from a divided heart syndrome. I may consider myself to be wise and understanding, but I've got a divided heart. When I reflect on my own life, I see this struggle. Uh, In my own journey as a Christian, I see that in the past I have often been too fast to say the the word which is witty and maybe funny, but which can sometimes be hurtful to people. And that for me has been an area of growth uh, throughout my 20s and 30s, and something which I think I've grown in uh, and matured in. But now I see my tongue maybe having different challenges at this stage in life. Uh, I have a family with young children which bring their own demands. Times when I am tired and frustrated and I get angry and I use my words sometimes in ways which afterwards I think are inappropriate to my kids. And that is now an area which I need to grow in, in this phase of life. In many ways, we all have divided hearts. In many ways, there are ways which we all, of course, need to grow as Christians in our speech. And of course, the sobering thing is, uh, in chapter 3, verse 8, James reminds us, nobody can tame the tongue. We can't tame the tongue in our own strength. I can't tame my tongue just through my own desire. But the important point is this. In James saying no man can tame the tongue, he's not saying the tongue cannot be tamed. 
We can tame it, but we need the help of the Holy Spirit. We need God's work in our hearts. And that brings us back to that wonderful place of humility, crying out, please change me and help me. It's what we saw back in verse uh, 5 of chapter 1, that desire for that true heavenly wisdom. It said this, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. It's only as my heart is increasingly renewed that my words will increasingly reflect that heavenly wisdom. With the psalmist, I cry out these words in Psalm 86, verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. And the last thing to say is this. Maybe this morning God's Spirit has convicted you of harmful things that you've said to people in the past. Well, you know, in some instances it is still possible to put those right. Maybe we still have the opportunity to speak to those people. We know that time is not the healer, but for confession and forgiveness is. Why not even now? Take an opportunity to address hurts of the past through things you've said, which even now could be restored and redeemed through confession and repentance and forgiveness. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, this is a profound passage uh, which is very practical. Uh, it is a sobering passage which reveals that even as people trusting in Christ, uh, we have divided hearts. Uh, even those of us who are mature in faith, we are not yet perfect, completely mature, and we still have that struggle. Uh, please, we pray, help us to grow in that heavenly wisdom. Help us to use our words and our tongues well in a way which is honoring to you and which brings peace and joy uh, and that beautiful fruit of righteousness wherever we go and leaves a trail not of spot fires behind us, but of joy and peace and delight. Amen.